Hello, this is Dina Metzger, and I am uh, the author of a new novel, A Reign of Nightbirds, and I am speaking with David Edward Walker, who is the author of uh, two novels, Tessa's Dance and Signal Peak, and David and I started a communication last August, which um, revealed very quickly that our work and thoughts and concerns were um, extraordinarily related to each other, though we hadn't known of each other's work. And so this is a wonderful opportunity for us to speak uh, with each other and uh, invite those of you who are listening to enjoy the conversation. Hello, David. Hi, Dina. How are you? Thanks so much for, uh, you know, inviting me to speak with you and uh, to extol the wonderful virtues of your new book, A Reign of Nightbirds, uh, which I hope everyone will take a look at. Well, and I feel the same way about your uh, your two novels and um, how important it is, I think, at, at this time in history uh, for people like yourself to you know, to speak about the the Yakima people, other tribal peoples, uh, their values, and um, and also what they have suffered uh, extremely mm-hmm. at the hands of, I guess, what my friend Victor Pereira called the ongoing conquest. Yes, the ongoing conquest. And one of the things that often happens in relation to that is the attempt on a sort of a colonial mentality to sort of formulate what that is from the outside rather than to speak directly with native people and seek to be taught. And I think it's really um, much to your credit that you have sought that the latter path and uh, written a book to really describe uh, the conflicts of consciousness that, that lie between how people think about the world and, and the nature about what's going on within it. Well, you know, because we've talked about this, that um, I had no choice about writing this book. I'm grateful that I could do it. I'm grateful that somehow I was informed enough to be able to write something which seems to be cogent and, val- and, and valid, uh, given how complex it is to write about a people or to have characters who are not from one's own background to be to begin with, but spirit called this book into being, and then when I wrote to you, you indicated that the same had happened with Tessa's dance. And oh yeah, so that's I, very much that's, yeah, yeah. And I think that 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 is that is something that actually turns out to be fairly common when you run into people who are trying to a lie and, and bear witness and not to co-opt, but to um, demonstrate and to uh, give voice uh, in their own way to, to what they're observing and what they're experiencing. And maybe when those, quote, voices come and insist that we write something or speak something or act in a certain way, that may be, oh, shall we say, a... Uh, a form of initiation into another way of thinking that it is um, 
part of Western culture, great disdain for those forms of knowing that uh, is one of the problems? It's one of the problems, and I, I also think that it's also, um, in addition to the disdain, it's also invisible. Uh, you know, it, 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 I think that there are constraints around language uh, and the history of language and how people come to know what they know and how they think and observe the world, how language affects uh, consciousness and perception. And that's the kind of heady thing to say in relation to writing uh, novels and writing fiction, because, you know, how story comes to you is is not really through, you know, a philosophic kind of set of ideas, but it's hard to put into words the dilemma of trying to um, walk into worlds uh, in, in front of your readers uh, and help them to, to at least uh, have a taste of doing the same. Well, I found when writing Reign of Nightbirds that I had to present the real conversation between John Birdswell, who was a country doc of the finest uh, uh, sort, and spent two years with the Indian Health Service at the Four Corners Reservation, his conversation with Hastin Seda, who was a Navajo elder. And when the two of them spoke together, uh, it became very clear that they saw the world in different ways and that language or ways of speaking had determined how they saw it. And John needed to have his mind changed, as all of us, I think, have to have our mind changed so that we can yes. hear and see um, with with another kind of wisdom. Yes, well said. And, and you know, this is where we, we have common ground, because in creating the character of Dr. Rhett Barlow, uh, you know, he, he really is an avatar for my own experience working with the Indian Health Service, uh, and uh, he's uh, a, a, you know a little more of a troublemaker than I ever was, and, and somewhat <laughs> more embarrassing uh, in some ways. But he is meant to be, uh, you know, in a sort of I guess sort of an archetypal way. He he's meant to be the fool, uh, it, trying to understand the nature of what he's encountering. And uh, so, you know, he does, uh, he does encounter a lot of things that I encountered in working for the Indian Health Service for four years and also in, in uh, not getting along with uh, the mental health system there as a psychologist and in being uh, compelled out onto the sacred land of the 14 Confederated Tribes and Bands of the Yakima Nation, uh, which is in central Washington, and in encountering this uh, brilliant and troubled and uh, uh, very important young woman named Tessa, who kind of came to me and whispered in my ear and said, write me. Uh, and that's basically how, how things came forward for, for both of those novels. You were in the hospital at the time. Isn't that right? Or you were laid up with something? Yeah, I was laid up. I'd actually had, I'd had a health crisis. I'd, I had a... Um, uh, problems walking uphill to the bus uh, when I was teaching, and I, I knew immediately that something was wrong, 
uh, and it turned out to be multiple pulmonary embolisms, mm. uh, which was a great uh, an interesting thing to be told by an ER doc. You know, I thought I was going to die within the next six or eight hours. Uh, and um, it turned out that everything was fine. It's better to have multiple pulmonary embolisms than one giant one. Uh, uh-huh. But the, the thing is that I had to get surgery uh, on, my, on my legs uh, to uh, improve my circulation. And uh, I was laid up and, and resting for about three weeks, and, and Tessa came and, and whispered in my ear. I'd been struggling to try to write up uh, uh, something to do with my experiences and um, she said, write me. And, and I really felt so facilitated by her. It, it really flowed forth from that point. I, I didn't have an outline or anything. I knew how things were going to end, as uh, she told me. And then I just followed the journey that she laid out before me. So here is this remarkable circumstance where I wrote to you, knew nothing about you, but had found an article you had written about the Hiawatha um, asylum, um, so to speak, uh, for Native children, and um, one of the for insane of, Indians. <clears throat> yeah, the, the Hiawatha I, asylum for insane Indians, right? I couldn't say it. I'm sorry, David. Thank you for saying it. I couldn't. Yeah, it's just hard to say, isn't it? But uh, it was um, a really uh, incredible uh, uh, and brutal a place that ran from 1899 to 1933 in Canton, South Dakota, uh, the only federal institution for uh, presumably emotionally disturbed uh, Native individuals in the United States. But what it actually became was a gulag uh, for housing people who were resistant to federal policies, who resisted sending their children to boarding schools, or resisted policies on the reservation, or resisted uh, forced assimilation, uh, and uh, many people were housed there, uh, and uh, over 200 people in the cemetery, which is now in the center of a golf course in that area, but has been blessed uh, thanks to the good efforts of Pamina Yellowbird, who is a Mandan Hidatsa and the three, affili- uh, three affiliated tribes up in, up in North Dakota, who I had some contact with and became interested in, the, in that asylum. Uh, and was able, I was able to get a hold of some records uh, from the asylum, which were thought to not be available, but I was able to get them. And uh, so I've been actually embarked on a nonfiction project to uh, look at the mental, mental hygiene movement from the, from the standpoint, uh, the mental hygiene movement in Indian country from the standpoint of uh, cultural oppression and, and coercion. That's, that's the primary area of interest I'm, I'm into right now. But that interest is definitely embedded, embedded in the two novels. Right. And that was, that was what caused me to write to you and then to discover that Tessa had come to you in the way that my novel had come to be, to me, was unnerving and thrilling. Um, I presume undeniable, too. Undeniable, because I had just finished writing a novel, and I was uh, traveling home from giving a reading and stopped in the middle of Joshua Tree National Park to take a walk. And it was cold. It was winter. There's something about how cold and bare uh, a desert uh, can be. And I was taking a walk, and 
and just preoccupied with what the next novel might be and picking up garbage. And when my hands were full, my pockets were full, everything I had with me was full of, of the garbage, and there was still so much I heard myself say, I'm sorry. And at that point, there was a voice, and the voice said, Do you know her name is Sandra Birdswell, and she is a meteorologist? <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't uh, know. Uh, and <laughs> Sandra Birdswell was not a name I would have thought. I did not really know anything about meteorology at that time. And in the course of writing the book, because times have changed, this was in um, 2012, um, 2011, uh, but in, in the years since then, uh, someone who would have been a meteorologist is probably now a climatologist looking at the global concern and how we have caused the Anthropocene, how we have caused the uh, these probably death throes of the planet. Mm -hmm. and, um, mm -hmm. and so here comes uh, Sandra, uh, a climatologist and her passion to heal the earth. Her father was a physician I spoke about before, and um, right, right, and the chair of her department. And this again is where we have this remarkable connection. The chair of her department um, is a mixed blood uh, man, and as I wrote to you, probably Yakima, and right. Um, I didn't know anything about uh, the Yakima uh, people, really, mm -hmm. um, but did go to uh, the Columbia Gorge, did go to the Hanford Nuclear Reservation, and did meet with someone that, again, we both know, uh, which is Rush Russell Jim and his right. profound mm -hmm. work. Um, you know him better than I do, so maybe you might say something about him well i don't i know russell i've met russell a number of times he um also is a revered elder at the tribal school at yakima nation where i consult so i see him from time to time i actually see his grandkids so oh you know my. i um <laughs> so you know there's there's um the, the way to you know I, i'm really it's really wonderful to hear your story uh of of being inspired uh to, uh, to write uh, a reign of nightbirds, and um, you know, um, I I I was thinking about. I think I I've told you this before, but I, I was thinking about how uh, there's an ambivalence that emerges in a person who is uh, from outside the community uh, in in wanting to be sure that that you're sanctioned, that you have a sense of permission yes. uh, to do so. You know, and um, it also, as you talked about the, the, the creative uh, aspect of this, um, the way that it would be thought of is entirely in keeping, at least in what I understand of the Yakima way, uh, it's entirely in keeping with the Yakima way, which would be that um, the, the, these works that you and I have been allowed to uh, create, um, they don't come from us, they come through us. Right. And, uh, and that this is... Uh, uh, part of the process. I was so ambivalent about um, some of the 
things that I wanted to write about in in my novels that I went and sought my elder, my adopted grandma, uh, Levina Wilkins, and sought her counsel. And she actually told me something very interesting. She said, uh, "If you you know this is your song, and if you don't sing it, uh, you will be you will become ill. You will become sick." Okay, so you have to sing it. And she has just one request. She asked that I write the novels in the direction of trying to bear witness before Euro-American people uh, to help huh. them kind of understand, you know. And so that's really the only request I received from her. And, and I was already doing that. So, but but the, my point is that the creative process um, is not coming from ego. It's coming from somewhere else. And that's right. how it's viewed. And you have so. no choice. You have to yield to it. And I think it's like yeah. anything else. When spirit comes to one, we have to yield. And if we don't, just as she said, we can get ill, we can be injured, they will take us down. Mm-hmm. And, right. um, you know, working with, with people with critical illnesses for, oh, who knows how many years, 50 years maybe now. Um, Mm -hmm. I have found that again and again and again that that illness may occur when people are resisting a a spiritual call because they're living against their nature Mm -hmm. if Mm -hmm. they do that. I'm totally with you on that. Yeah. And you know, um, you know, you mentioned you mentioned Hanford uh, and and Russell Jim, uh, and this brings to mind, of course, the people along the river. Yakima Nation is a diverse uh, nation of people in that people who were semi-nomadic around the entire region were pushed into a reservation. So you have people who lived along the river, the, the river people, and then you have people who uh, lived and gathered and hunted along the plateau, Columbia Plateau. And uh, and so there there is kind of a, something of a difference as far as the, the diversity of different communities. And, and uh, the river concerns uh, are, very, are so strong among everyone there, but it is the river people who have had to uh, advocate in so many ways over many years uh, for their uh, their treaty rights, uh, not, not only their treaty rights to fish uh, in in Nichiwana in the Columbia River, uh, but also uh, to protect uh, the uh, wildlife and the salmon in particular, the salmon who are sacred beings uh, who come every spring and are welcomed back uh, in the first foods. Uh, feasts at Yakima. And um, I, I was aware as I was reading some of your um, uh, references in your in, in your book, and I don't want to spoil anything, but just references to Hanford, uh, I was I was aware of uh, running into some folks whose, whose job actually was to help people understand that the salmon uh, in Hanford region had been irradiated right. uh, by Hanford and that they should not uh, engage in the traditional consumption of the entire fish any longer. They could no longer boil the bones because of that. And so th- there has been warnings and cautions and advocacy about the health of the salmon and protecting the salmon for decades now. And, uh, and, and these, these are the people who have been 
uh, standing guard and, and, and taking care of the river. Uh, and that's right. something that I just want to get out there. Well, so. I'm glad because this is also, as you know, part of, of the novel. And there is a moment where Terrence Green speaks about the fish that are hanging at night, uh, drying, uh, and and you can see them because they're shining with this horrific irradiated light. Yes, 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 and, and, and that's so that's so frightening. Yeah, you know, and yeah. and, and when and, I heard you say that the people have received warnings, I could hear a Western person saying, "Well, we told them not to eat the fish." And yet I remember when uh, when the warning is you must not do this so the fish will not be irradiated because these are holy beings. Even if yes. they weren't sacred beings, you wouldn't want to do that. Um, yes. and, and so here is the difference in mind, right, mm-hmm. between the Western mind, which is, I told you so, and the Native mind, which says, we would never do this. We would not destroy the earth or the water in this way. We treat these yes. beings as sacred. And this yes, is it's the mind. Living with, living with rather than living upon the earth. That's what it's about. So. Right. And this is exactly what I hoped would happen when someone read the book, that they would go through the process that um, Sandra Birdswell and Terrence uh, Green go through as they yes. bear witness to what has been done. And <clears throat> being together, uh, because they come together um, in the course of the book, being together in a beautiful love story, which was also given to me, and I'm so grateful for it, for its authenticity uh, and its depth. Yes. But being together, they face every single moment what we have done to the earth. And, right. um, and people well, I think have you've accomplished. Know. I think you've accomplished giving voice to this this feeling wonderfully, Tina. And uh, I also, um, you know, I think that uh, it represents something that I have been trying to do with what I've been writing, which is to more or less um, bring about kind of an intervention in a way, um, if you want to call it that, from the I think Western mindset way. of psych- Yeah, from the Western mindset of psychology, which I practice, you know, an intervention to try to alert people to um, different ways of knowing and thinking. That's been a, that's kind of a theme in the, in my novels is, something of a different tact, which is um, Rhett Barlow, he goes through a lot of changes trying to understand his own dreams, trying to understand his own mixed blood heritage and how to think and feel about it. And even encountering the power of indigenous language to um, kind of uh, really communicate values and ways of living that aren't inherent in English. I had to really double check a lot of stuff uh, in using, um, I, I you know, have glossaries in each of my books and I had to, you know, kind of interface with, uh, with my Kala, who's the director of language programs at, at Yakima Nation 
am I using this word correctly? You know, what does this word mean? And always she would tell me, you know, I can explain it to you in English, but it's like a paragraph or two to explain it. And we only have this one word. <laughs> right. I'm so struck by that. So. I mean, don't they say, and rightly so, that the only way to learn um, a native language of, of that nature is to sit at the foot of the grandmother or the grandfather and take in the range of meanings uh, that we only mm-hmm. have one word for and that when we use that one word, we compress out uh, an entire universe of implication mm-hmm. and understanding. I mean, even when well, you, you, you keep saying my kala because yeah. that is the word that expresses the complexity of the relationship. Well, in an interesting the aspect of that word is that she calls me Kala too. Huh. So our relationship and what does that is mean, the then? same. It, it means, um, I mean, in English, it would mean <laughs> grandma, <laughs> grandmother, grand, grandmother, grandson. Okay. But um, it's all one. It signifies that we are in, we are in unity in one term, in one relation. Okay. And we're relatives in close and uh and when I listen to her and she tells me a story, I look down uh at the floor because I'm being taught. And that's the way, you know, to listen and be and be clear. And you can ask questions, but ask them later. Don't interrupt. Um we gave a conference uh years ago at Yakima Nation and we had uh uh, it was on a, a conference to try to improve the uh, uh, the situations for youth in, in various uh, dilemmas on the res. Uh, we had youth who were sometimes running away and living in the orchards. We had problems in the schools with racism uh, against youth. And we held a conference called uh, Pathways to Hope. And um, mm-hmm. we were blessed to have an elder uh, from the Kamilpa band, Elsie uh, Dick, come to speak at uh, at the end of the day. She stood up uh, during the question and answer period, and she understood English quite well, uh, but she had chosen not to speak it because of what she uh-huh. had personally gone through in the boarding schools. And uh-huh. so her daughter, her daughter would translate for her. Uh-huh. And so she got up and stood at the front of the room, leaning on her fully beaded cane, and began to speak in the native language in uh, Ichitskin Sinwit, which is the which simply means the way we talk uh, oh. in uh, in Yakima. And she began talking, and she spoke for an hour, an hour and uh-huh. fifteen minutes. Uh-huh. And uh, um, well, the janitor for the building came and said, "Hey, uh, we're supposed to close up at five. And I turned to him and I said. Uh, Okay, you go tell her then. <laughs> <laughs> and she spoke right. till seven thirty that night, Dina. Right. Because we lis- we listen until listening is done. We listen until the person has completed their thought. And we don't think of so. other we don't think about what we want to say while someone else is speaking. We listen. Right. right. So right. these are the things that are so different that are hard for people. 
when I first came to Yakima Nation, I, I was asked to introduce myself and I did the typical, well, I went to school here, I got my degree mm-hmm. here, I did this and that. And at right. the very end, there was a very long pause. Mm-hmm. And then one of the elders said, well, you speak very fast. You must be from the city. And, uh, you know, the air has gotten very warm since you started talking, which I took away as you're full of hot air. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> and, and I'm sure since then you've learned to say, these are my people and this is the land that I'm from. And, and That's right. Introduce yourself in, in the old way, which is relationship to all the That's beings. Right. Because where you went that's to school, right. that's really irrelevant. Um, exactly. I think, I think this is a beautiful uh, place for us to, uh, to stop. I am so grateful okay. for, uh, for this conversation. Would like to have many more with you. Um, hope everyone who hears this buys Signal Peak and Tess's Dance and reads all your remarkable work, um, uh, which they can find on, on, on the web, uh, about your true intervention. <coughs> and, um, well, I hope they, I hope they, I hope they um, pick up a, a rain of nightbirds <laughs> as soon as possible because um, our planet is suffering. Uh, we're living in a time where there's an absolute necessity, not merely a need, but well beyond a need to uh, change social consciousness, to uh, reconstruct ourselves, and to begin thinking in some new and very wise ways that have been around for for many, many thousands of years. Oh, thank you. We have to save the mother, right? We do. We do. We have to. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you, David. Thank you, Thank Dina. Thank you so much. And we'll talk again. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye.